0: The following audio is from Overland Park Community Church. More information about OPCC can be found online at overlandpark.cc. Welcome to OPCC. Welcome to those of you joining online. Uh, if it's your first time here, we want to welcome you today and encourage you to turn to uh, Romans chapter 3 as we continue to study um, this series on, on believe and talking about what we really, at the end of the day, can offer to the Lord. I hate falling short Um, last year in the softball with the Savior event was the first time my team fell short. And it was, it was not fun. I don't like to, I don't like to fall short in anything. (laughs) Sometimes I'm shooting my bow and I've been practicing these long distances and I fall short and I lose an arrow and those things are about six bucks a piece. That's frustrating. Um, and I, I don't like... With any, you know, with people, um, I just I don't like to disappoint people. Um, Something happens, you know, and um, you know maybe people aren't happy with the church or something. I just I beat myself up and I feel like I've fallen short. Kind of got to pick myself up off the ground from that. I just hate it, and I think sometimes that comes over and fall, you know, kind of can easily spill over into our relationship with the Lord. Um, We don't want to fall short um, with Him. But at the end of the day, as I've been trying to uh, really emphasize throughout this series, is belief is all we have to offer to God. That's it. Um, Everything must flow uh, from faith. And so as I mentioned believe, uh, I'm I'm meaning a little bit more than just believe in the existence of God. I'm, I'm coupling that with faith that you have, a, you have you've placed your trust in Christ, and now you just continue to do that in every situation. Um, things that get a little bit of out of kilter and off balance, and you start to worry a little bit, as we all do, at different things, whether it be our health or, or things going on um, in your business or your, your job uh, or at school, relationships, relationships, and you, you, you get a little bit shook up and you got to go, wait a minute here, who is, who is it that I belong to? And, and you, again, exercise faith in that moment, get a hold of your emotions, get a hold of your actions, and walk out your faith uh, before the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul, he has shown us um, some really important things uh, about people. As we started in chapter one and two, um, there's a lot of heavy stuff going on there. One of the things he was um, really pointing out toward uh, the end of chapter one, I, bu- I believe it was, is that uh, some people worship the creature over the creator. And they get involved in looking at like their whole life goal becomes about um, things that are, are created instead of the one that created him. And we can see that being played out in our culture uh, today. And then, and then there are some um, who... Invent their own gods, make a God in their own image, and begin to worship that in whatever capacity it may be, whether it's their their career, and sometimes it's awareness that you're doing that, and 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 you're aware that you're you've invented some kind of God and it could be a, a form of religion. It could be some other kind of idol in your life that maybe you're not even aware that you've done your pursuit of money or. Or pursuit of fame or anything of that nature. And you create something uh, of your own God. And then there are others who compare and think they're okay because they're better than others or that they do some good. And so there's a comparison thing that goes on. We really dove into that last week. And then others simply rely on religious behavior. And Paul will continue to kind of blow a hole in, in that religious behavior piece. Uh, this week. Chapter three is one of the most beautiful chapters in all the Bible. Um, it, it is a it's just loaded with theology. I won't try to unpack all of it uh, for you today, but but it, it is also a place where we start to turn a corner in the book of Romans. It's been heavy and been really heavy up up this point, up to this point. and And so before we make the turn, I mean, it's going to be heavy again. He's going to start again, and he's he's further fleshing out the, these ideas. And he started, you know, with, um, you've got the natural revelation. God speaks to us through the created order, and people end up worshiping that which is created instead of the one who created it. And we can look at nature and know that God exists. Um, God showed, the word showed us, Paul taught through how um, we've got the moral law and our consciences that God has written the moral law in our hearts that everybody knows um, about goodness. <laughs> we did. Man didn't invent goodness, it's just there. We know, we, do, we know there's a right and we know there's a wrong. And even the very word ought tells us that. We've created a word for it, ought. And why do we have that word? Why do we think that you should do good and uh, you shouldn't do bad? Why is that even there? because we are created in the image of God and he has written the moral law in our heart and all mankind knows that. And, and so then we, we get into um, the third category that we started to dive into a little bit was specific revelation. The God through the Bible, through the prophets of the Old Testament, the writings of scripture, he gave us specific revelation about how to interact with him. And that's why the Jewish people were chosen to record this a language that God would share with them about who he is and and what he's done. And there would be the promise in that language and those words of a Messiah that would come and he would take away the sin of the world. And so then we get to the New Testament. God comes in the flesh and that specific revelation, it takes on flesh. That's why the apostle John and his gospel says the Word, the Logos, became flesh and dwelt among us. And so the greatest specific revelation that we have is the life and testimony of the man called Jesus Christ, who was fully God and fully man. And so when we look at Jesus and we use the terms God as, as believers in Christ, Jesus is God, God is Jesus. It's just that Jesus is God robed in flesh. He comes to specifically reveal himself, to all of humanity. And so as we um, make this turn, all of this in this heavy part is designed to teach us the magnitude of the grace of God. And, and and so it's as if God talks about his wrath, he talks about his judgment, he talks about the wickedness of man. And you just you read it and you're just like, "Ah." But it's all designed to make you feel exactly that way. And so today he's gonna take in chapter three with this specific revelation, and he's he's gonna just like really kind of put the pressure on and squeeze us with a load, a a, a tremendous load of truth about who God is and who we are. And that's all designed again to show us the magnitude of the grace and mercy of God. And so to make the turn, we start with this specific revelation again, with the word and Jesus. And this is what he says in verse one. What advantage then is there in being a Jew or um, value, what value is there in circumcision? Remember, he was talking about the Jews had the right of circumcision and that's what set them apart. And they were practicing a lot of the things that the law said to do. And he was like, man, that doesn't make any difference. It's all about what's happened on the inside of your heart, not the outward stuff. That that the outward stuff was important. It was teaching people something. It was reinforcing an idea. But when you make it about the outward behavior, you've lost sight of everything. And so he says, what advantage then is there? What advantage is there in being a Jew? And he says, much in every way, first of all, the Jews have have been entrusted with the very words of God. He says, there's a, there's a huge advantage to being a Jew because the Jews were selected by God to receive the word and be a testimony to all of the nations of who God is. And so there is an advantage, he says, uh, of receiving the word, knowing who God is, um, being brought up in a, in a Jewish home that taught you about who this God is. He says, there, there's an advantage in that. And he says... Um, but what if someone were unfaithful? Will their unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? Not at all. Let God be true, and every human being a liar, as it is written, so that you may be proved right when you speak, and prevail when you judge. And so, what is he saying? He's saying, well, what you know, the Jews receive the word. What if they don't do the word? Um, does that does that impact God? Like, is is that is that um, like, does that have any kind of value on who God is? And he says, absolutely not, man. He says that um, God will be proved right regardless of what we do. So, a lot of times we think that as I follow the Lord, I'm adding value to God. No, not at all. There's nothing you could do in your life that would make God more valuable, more holy better than he is today, better than he's always been. And so he says, you know, what if we are unfaithful? What if we receive the word and and we're unfaithful to that which we received? He said, doesn't matter. God will still be faithful to what he said. If if all of the people who even claim to believe that that the Bible is the word of God, they are completely unfaithful to it. God will still be faithful and the plan will still work itself out. And that's what the Lord is saying. He is faithful in all of this. And then some, he said, but if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say? That God is unjust in bringing his wrath on us? And he says, I am using a human argument. Certainly not. If that were so, how could God judge the world? Someone might argue, if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases his glory, why am I still condemned as a sinner? Why not say, as some slanderously claim that we say, let us do evil that good may result. And he says, their condemnation is, their, is just. Their condemnation is just. This is a, an idea that goes all the way, obviously, back to Paul's time. He's dealing with it. It's called antinomianism. And it is that um, it, the righteousness of God is so pure that it doesn't really matter how we live um, that if we live and we sin and we are apart from God, it just means more of God's grace will be poured out in order to make us right. A lot of times people can get confused uh, uh, around the, the position of eternal security, that you know, it doesn't matter how you live. If you're saved, you're saved. And sometimes a person might even say uh, something to the effect of, well, you know, it, it, I, I might be doing this right now, but, but God will forgive me. He says, man, that is no way to live whatsoever, and condemnation will come from that kind of attitude. A person who really knows the Lord and understands the Lord is not going to live uh, with that kind of attitude. And so if we look at this first section and um, we, we ask ourselves, okay, what is the big takeaway for us as a group of believers? It is this. It is that advantages are good, but, but they are not enough, Okay. So advantages are always good. That's what Paul is saying. He says, is there an advantage of being a Jew? Yeah, is there an advantage? And he says, it's a good advantage. You have the word. And I would say to you, man, that, Advantages are good. You you have an advantage today over a lot of people who have never been to church and heard the sound of the gospel. You have an advantage today. You're going to hear it. You're going to hear the gospel in its fullness the best that I can do to explain it to you. That's an advantage. Uh, You have an advantage of having churches all over in the city that you live in. That's a tremendous advantage um, for us. We look at other parts of the world. There There are many people who've never heard the gospel at all, never even heard it. Never even seen a church. There's not even a church that exists in their village. And so you have an advantage, much like the Jew. Uh, Maybe you grew up in a Christian home. There's an advantage, man. There's an advantage. I tell my kids this all the time. I can't give you a lot of things um, by the the sacrifice that we've made and and we're in full-time ministry. There are a lot of things I I cannot give you because uh, of my earning potential. But one advantage that I can give you is that you get to watch somebody who loves the Lord. You get to watch somebody who talks to the Lord all, every day. And you get to watch somebody who's in the Word. You've heard me teach uh, the Word um, from the time that you left um, kids' church all the way through, throughout until you leave home. You've been listening um, to sermons. <laughs> they, say, I don't, that's not, they say, that's not an advantage. <laughs> uh, but you have a father, you have a mother that loves Jesus and is serving him. And so you guys, I tell my kids, you, you have a tremendous advantage. And so there's, there's a tremendous advantage for a person, a child, to grow up in a home. That's why we do the baby dedication in May uh, for mo- new moms and dads who are having children, that they're making a commitment to raise that kid in a, in a Christian home. It, it gives that kid an advantage. He gets to see, uh, hopefully, what a model of, of what it means to know and follow Christ. What, who is Jesus? What is the Word of God? that's a tremendous advantage. Um, Getting baptized, that can be an advantage. Taking communion, understanding what communion is could be an advantage. Um, Understanding those things. Some people have gone through confirmation. There's a little bit of an advantage there. And so in all of that, it is good, but it is not enough. Like every one of my kids, that just because they have an advantage of a father who knows and loves Jesus, each one of them is responsible and accountable, accountable to, uh, to the, the creator of the universe for the decision that they make about Jesus themselves and for their own lives. It is not my heart just because they're my children. I don't get to decide that their heart is given to Jesus. It's their heart and they get to decide. And so Paul is first saying, yeah, there's an advantage here, but it's not enough. And we we see that he goes on in verse 9, and and he he says, well, what can we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? Not at all. (laughs) He's like, yeah, there's an advantage, but really when you break it down, it's not that great of an advantage when you really boil it down to what it really means. For we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike uh, are all under the power of sin as it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. He says, there is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. He says, man, there's never been a person who just in his nature has decided, I'm going to seek God and pursue him. He says, all have turned away. They have together become worthless. Now, what does that word mean? It, it's it's the, the same word that, that, that Jesus, or it means the opposite of the word that Jesus used in John 15, where he says uh, that, uh, you know if you abide in me, you shall bear fruit, a fruit that will last, worth, like, like everlasting fruit. He's saying right here, he's saying, all have turned away, have they, they have together become worthless. That, that is a picture of rotten fruit. She's no good. Like, you, you never met a cook that said, Yeah, give me the rotten, um, stinky potato and I can do something with it. No, it's out of here, man. It's messing up the whole kitchen, it's messing up the pantry. That thing stinks. We have to get it and get it out of the house because it's polluting the whole house. That's the word. Get this thing out of here. He says, All. He says, Everyone. I'm going to encourage y'all today. all have turned away. They have together become worthless. Who's all? You're all. I'm all. There is no one who does good, not even one. He says, now now he begins to give a description of what people are like. And, And he starts with, and he's quoting from the Psalms of the Old Testament. Their throats are open graves. You go to the doctor, he says, no, doc, I'm not feeling well. Just got this coffin, just achy. He said, open up there. Ah, look down in there, right? He says, their throat is an open grave, nothing but death inside there. I told you it was heavy before we make the turn. <laughs> he says, their tongues practice deceit. Like, not only is there death down inside of them, when they open their mouth, deceit comes out of them. The poison of vipers is on their lips. It's like a snake, man. And somebody says, "Is is that snake poisonous? No, not really. He touched the snake all over. The snake has a sack in his mouth. And when he opens his mouth and exposes his fangs, those fangs empty that sack. And what's in that sack is what's poison, right? And he says, man, when you when when, when people open their mouths, they're, they're, they're full, they're, the poison of vipers is on their lips. And he says, their, their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways, and they and the way of peace they do not know. And he said, Look, and man, and so this this thing plays itself unchecked at all by the moral law. The person sears their conscience and becomes hard. This is how you get homicides down in Kansas City, two or three times a week. Turn on the news, and two more kids have been shot. Another person's been shot. It's right here. That's how it happens, man. They've ignored the, the moral law. They've in, ignored the natural law. They're, they've given way to themselves, and they've become really a god to themselves, and life doesn't matter anymore because they are the only things that matter. And so destruction is all they leave behind. They're walking down the broad way that leads to destruction. They've never comprehended the narrow road that leads to life. And he goes on and he says, um, why, why is that all the case? Verse 18 tells us, there is no fear of God before their eyes. They have no fear of God whatsoever. Don't think about God. Don't don't contemplate God. They just think about the here and now, and that would go for all human beings, okay? And so again, we cannot make the mistake of when I talk about homicides and I talk about a murderer, and we go, oh, yeah, that's not me. He said all of us. It's everybody. Everybody left to themselves unchecked by the moral law or the natural law ends up in that place. But all of us have this stuff going on. All of us are in this position that when we look down deep inside of what's going on, there's nothing but death inside of us. He says, now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. So now he's bringing in the specific revelation. The law is the Old Testament and the prophets. Up to the time of the writing of the New Testament, when he talks about this, it's the oracles of God that is, is what has been entrusted to the Jewish people. And he says that all that is given so that the entire world can be held accountable to God. Therefore, no one, Now I repeat, therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. Here's your second takeaway. All are under the power of sin. Everybody, like everybody, without question. And so he's saying that the law is given to us that God gives us everything that he's prescribed in the Old Testament that he handed to Moses. And so he made a promise first and foremost to Abraham, and the promise was passed down, and the family grows up, and eventually, um, through uh, time and reproduction, this patriarch Abraham's family turns into a nation. It takes centuries for it to happen. And they're captive in Egypt, and then they're delivered by the leadership of Moses. God uh, supernaturally intervenes and calls Moses to lead them out of Egypt. And as he leads them out of Egypt, God comes to Moses and he gives them the law. And so that law is something of which they were to, to practice and adhere to. And so they started that process. And if you read through the remainder of the, the Old Testament, all it reads like is every once in a while someone did good and was raised up, and the people did pretty good and turned their hearts toward the Lord. But for the most part, they just kept missing the mark. They just kept missing the mark. It's like, this seems so unfair. Why would God do that? The law is given so that we become conscious of our sin. We recognize how far we fall short. And this whole section here is an, is an indictment against all humanity, you included, me included. And there, there, we can sum it up in three C's here, and it's our character, our conversation, and our conduct. Like left to ourselves, man, we just, we just, we just fail over and over and over again. And the more that we try to do the things that God has said that we should do in the Old Testament law, the more we fail, the more miserably we fail. We may have not ever murdered, and we get to the New Testament, and what does Jesus say? He says he takes the law, and everybody says, well, Jesus, I follow Jesus. I don't follow the Old Testament. Well, the Old Testament said if you murder someone. Jesus said if you have hatred for your brother, you are murdered. Jesus takes the law from here and 10Xs it, right? It's like impossible. Like the law says don't commit adultery. Jesus said, if you lust in your heart, you've committed it. Wow, all are under the power of sin. Now, verse 12, I want to clue in on, because it's really, really important. And it it says um, that they turned away. The Greek word behind that turned away is a klino, and it means leaning the wrong direction, okay? So all are under the power of sin, all humanity, you, me, everybody, we're leaning, when we we come into this world, we're leaning the wrong direction. We're leaning away from God. And humans, you see, we love sin, that's why we practice it. For the most part, I mean, people get engaged in sin, they, they enjoy it. And, and, and if, if we are in a place where we're ignoring our consciences and we're ignoring the natural law, um, and we, we don't yet know Christ, we can what we'll do to kind of compensate for some of the guilt is invent a God whether it be that I'm going to try to do a lot of, I'm going to be a do-gooder and I'm just going to help people. Therefore, it's going to be okay that I engage in the sin or I'm going to invent a God to my own liking that makes it permissible for me to live how I want to live. So I invent a God where I say, well, I don't need to be a part of a church. I don't need to be a part of the body of Christ. I don't need to believe the Bible. I just invent my own God. You say, well, I believe in God, but I just don't believe in the Bible. You see how that happens all the time. You see it everywhere if you pay attention. And so this leads to hatred of the, of the law itself, which is specific revelation. So people who, who, who are postured away from the Lord and never posture back toward the Lord start to develop a hatred of the things of the Lord. And they start to love sin more and more because it, the law, and we hate the law because it makes us aware of sin. However, a true believer... You know, on a mark of how do I know if I have come to a place of faith in my life and, and, and I, I have the spirit of God in me? How would you know that? One mark of a true believer is that they always hate sin, even when he, is, he or she is doing it and always after he has done it because it is completely contrary to the new nature. So how do we know? One of the marks is like, like, I can testify of that. I can testify that I hate to sin. I hate it when I sin. And even in the midst of being engaged in sin, I, I know when I'm sinning and I hate it, like even in the midst of it. And when it's over, I even hate it more. And so there's something that has shifted in me because I didn't used to be that way. And so the question is, is so, so what has happened is that, that, that there's a work that has happened in me that I was postured and leaning in the wrong direction. And somehow I shifted and started leaning in the right direction. And what that created in me is it stirred me up and I have a hatred towards the things that are sinful in the world. And so how do we fix that? How do we go from leaning away to leaning to? Well, you do not do it. By trying to observe the law. That's what Paul is saying. It would be like, um, and, and a lot of people, that's what they do is they're like, well, you know, they hear a message like this and they, they, can, they, can, they can receive it the wrong way. And then it's like, yeah, I, I want to try to do better. I want to try to do better. And so in order to please God, they just start trying to do the things. Sometimes, they, well, I know what the Ten Commandments are. I'm going to try not to lie. I'm, gonna, I'm not going to steal. I'm not going to bear false witness against my neighbor. I, I, I'm going to love God. I, and, and so I'm going to start to focus on these ten, and I'm going to do them. And so they just try with all their might. It's the same thing, the same thing, you being able to do that, okay, and 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 with and all the law with all of its different instructions about who God is, it would be like if we got on a dock on the East Coast somewhere, and it was a long dock, maybe about the long, length of the middle aisle here at the church, and we lined up, and I was there, and I was like, "Okay, guys, so let's jump to to England." And one guy, man, would be like, "All right, I can see Shay, can't y'all?" He's like loaded up, takes off running and jumps. And we're like, whoa, man. And then there's a little kid. He tries and he barely makes it this far. And then there's a person who can't hardly walk very well. And they just get down to the end and boop, tip over. So we look at them, they're all in different places. But even the person who jumped the furthest is a long way from England. And the only thing different about him and the little grandma that fell off the end of the dock is he's just in deeper water. That's it. And so that's what happens when we're trying to perform. We just get into a deeper sin And it's the sin of self-righteousness. It's where the Pharisees were. That's why he called them such, um, he called them vipers. John the Baptist said you were like vipers. Jesus said you're like whitewashed sepulchers. That's that open grave when you look inside of them. That's what they are. It's because they're trying to perform the law in order to get right with God instead of recognizing the law was given to make us conscious of our sin and to realize we fall short. That's what it does. It shows us. And so then whew, we can make the turn. Amen. But he says, but now in verse 21, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. Because of what law? The law that requires works? No, because of the law that requires faith. For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles too? Yes, of the Gentiles too, since there is only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through that same faith. Do we then nullify the law by this faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. Here's your last takeaway. No sinner seeks God, so God seeks the sinner. Jesus said in John chapter 6, no one can come to the Father unless the Father draws him unto himself. And so we don't start this thing with a person seeking God. Adam sinned, and what did he do? He fled, he hid, and God came looking for him. And so what happens when we are leaning in the wrong direction, we're away from God. We live in a lifestyle of fleeing. We're constantly hiding. And then God comes to look for us and he does it through the foolishness of preaching like this or preaching through another person. The gospel comes on your ears and you're starting to feel the, the prompting of the spirit. You say, what about the guy in the village that doesn't have a church? He starts to look at the sun, rise and fall. He starts to look on his heart and go, I know right from wrong. Why do I know right from wrong? If he looks at the revelation that God is given given him. He will continue to seek that out and and God will begin to move in his heart and he will bring across someone in his path to share the gospel with him so that he could say yes to Jesus because that is the only way one can be justified um, in God's eyes. And so when a sinner believes has faith in Jesus and trusts in Jesus, what is happening is they are coming back to God. And what we have is a world in which we live even in the context of Christianity, is that some people talk about their goodness, some people talk about other people's badness, and most people talk about both. But the righteous is <laughs> a great word. You say, with that, like you look at a motorcycle and we go, "That's righteous." That's not what the word means. Okay. That's slang. Righteous means you're just, you're right, like all of God and all of his holiness, all of his glory, all of his separateness, all of him uh, about him that is so far removed from us. That's righteousness. Okay? And so we can have that. And how do, how do the righteous get that? How, do, how does one become righteous? He humbly admits his guilt to everything I've just described and calls on the Lord Jesus Christ to save him. That's it, man. You trust in the work of Christ. And as you trust in the work of Christ, you receive the righteousness of God. And that righteousness of Christ starts to become operative in your life. And now you start to have a disdain for sin. You've shifted. You've changed the direction that you're leaning. Now, real quickly, this this is a story in the Bible, man, in Luke chapter 18. Listen to this, what what Jesus says. To some, this is verse 9, to some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. Talked about others, talked about himself. Talked about the badness in someone else and the goodness in him. Oh, but the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you, this man rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. It comes a time in a man's life that he has to look at the world. He has to look at everything that's going on around him. He has to look at the specific revelation that is given to him. And as God seeks him and knocks on the door of his heart, he either has to say, no, I'm good, which is pride raised up and saying, I'll have my own God, no thank you. I'll invent it my own way and is proud. He's just like the Pharisee. See, some people think, they look at church people and they go, well, I don't wanna be like a a church person. I don't want you to be like a church person either. I want you to be righteous in the sight of God. You say, I don't wanna be like that, so I'm gonna maintain my cool factor and I'm gonna be over here and say, oh, I don't really need all that. You are just like the Pharisee because you're saying I'm good you're just good in a different way it is your performance and what you think is going on in the side of you that it makes you right with god and i've just described that every man every woman every boy every girl all are guilty before god and the righteous have just recognized that and humbly admitted their sin to jesus asked for forgiveness and they have received it. And that, uh, that, that, uh, that righteousness becomes operative in their lives. Now, the big idea says, believe in Jesus, okay? And I would, I would encourage you to write next to believe, have faith. Have faith in Jesus. He says in verse 25, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. This is the word propitiation, And and we don't see it a lot in the Bible. In the Hebrew equivalent of it, the same word means the mercy seat. The mercy seat was the cover of the Ark of the Covenant. Inside the Ark of the Covenant was the law, the two tablets that God had given to Moses. They were placed in the Ark of the Covenant. The mercy seat is on top of it. And the high priest, once a year, would go in and make atonement for the sins of the people. And the way that he would do that is they would bring two goats up to the front of the tabernacle. And in one goat, he would reach down and he would cut that goat's throat. He would bleed that goat out. He would capture blood from that goat, take it into the most holy place where he had to wear bells on the the, uh, hem of his robe to, to say that he was approaching God. He would go in there and he would take the hyssop. He would dip it in there, which is some grassy substance like a brush, and he would splatter the mercy seat. He would splatter it with the blood of that goat. And then he would walk out and he would go to the tabernacle again. He would place his hand on the other goat and he would pray and he would confess the sins of Israel. And they would take that goat out to the wilderness and they would let it go to be seen no more. Okay, the scapegoat. And so what is happening there is that when we look at this and when you believe in Jesus, when you have faith in Jesus, this is what this is all saying, The law is upheld because God in all of his righteousness, the law demands that death be the consequence for sin. And so when you call upon Jesus, you're calling upon the blood of Christ that is shed for the salvation of the world. And so you're calling on that and and God is sprinkling the law, my justice that demands because I am holy My justice demands that there be a consequence. The law is fulfilled and then the sin is taken away. And so they had this picture given to them every, like it was just an annual thing that happened that they knew about. And then the the, uh, the sins being taken out to the wilderness, it's like we, we forget about them. They're as far as the east is the, from the west and placed in the sea of forgetfulness. And that's what makes me righteous. And so it does not matter. It does not matter how much good I do. I don't become more righteous. And it does not matter if I am disobedient. I do not become less righteous because my righteousness is the righteousness of Christ as I'm covered by the blood of the Lamb. And so then I begin to think on that. And I'm like, geez, man, look at what God has done in me. I don't, I don't deserve this. He has made me right with Himself. And now all of a sudden there is a desire inside of me to avoid sin and honor God, not because I'm trying to make the world a better place. I'm not trying to uh, serve in the kingdom and preach the gospel because I'm trying to make the world better. I'm not trying to lay my life down for people because I I want people to look at me and go, man, look at what good he does. That's an admirable profession. I could care less about that. Like what I'm doing is trying to glorify the creator of the universe. Why am I doing that? Because I'm blown away. (laughs) I'm blown away by what he's done for me. And so I don't do it to like, get him to go, yeah, like that guy. He likes me. <laughs> he just likes me. And, 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 there's, and there's nothing I can do other than just to believe in him, call upon Jesus. And so I live to glorify Christ and not myself. And that's why I seek to obey the Lord Jesus Christ. Because my heart has been shifted. I've been changed. That's the gospel. And so if you are a man or a woman or a boy or a girl, and you have never fallen on your face humbly before God, you are still an open grave when you open your mouth and nothing but death is coming up out of your mouth when it comes to God. You say, well, yeah, but I do some good. Yes, we're not saying you're you're wicked in your behavior. We're just saying that who God is in all his holiness, he can't look upon you as righteous because you are not. And you know you are not. You know you fail miserably. You know you fall short. And if you're not careful, you'll be caught up in that place of brokenness and falling short and trying to please God. And that is just an awful way to live that the Lord doesn't ask us to live that way. You start to please God because you know you're right with him. And then your behavior starts to follow because it's not something you're trying to do to perform like a circus monkey in front of Jesus. You just go, man, like, he's made me the showman of the show. Why well, has he done that? He's shared his righteousness with me. He's shared his glory with me. And that's why he calls me the body of Christ. I'm his hands, I'm his feet, I'm his eyes, I'm his ears. I'm walking on the planet, bringing the good news of the gospel to all those who are in the same condition that I was in. The only difference is I've been redeemed. This is the word of the Lord. Every head bowed, every eye closed. No one looking around. Have you humbly confessed, like in humility, confessed before Christ that you are guilty and asked him to forgive you? That's the heart of the message today. It's the heart of the gospel. It's why we do everything that we do. In, in this moment, if you haven't, God is seeking you. He's seeking you. But as I said last week, and we'll repeat again, it's your heart to give. And you must decide whether he gets it. And I would encourage you right there in your chair, open your mouth and start talking to Jesus right now. Or be proud. I'm so glad I'm not like that guy. I'm so glad I'm not like that girl. I'm so thankful, Lord, that I've got my stuff together. That's the way of the Pharisee. The way of the righteous is smoting yourself on the chest and humbly admitting, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I'm guilty. And then you will know what it means to be saved and forgiven. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you that we do not have to rely on our own performance to walk in a right standing with you, that we place all of our faith and our trust in what you've done. And help us to live in that victory, Lord, to recognize it is not what we're doing that makes us more righteous and what we're not doing that makes us less righteous. Let that be the sound that breaks forth from our lips in praise, that we are right because of what you have done. And may our works follow us because we understand who we are. And may we live in such a way that we never put our works ahead of our faith, that our faith is alive and our works follow. And it's not dead and we're trying to perform. Lord, it is a beautiful picture. It is a beautiful picture of what you have done for us. I pray for each heart here, those that don't know you, Lord, that they may repent in this moment. And they would share with someone else that you did a work in their lives today. We love you. We thank you. And we pray these things in Christ's name and amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Overland Park Community Church in Overland Park, Kansas. For more information, visit us online at overlandpark.cc.